As you may know, we are a church that celebrates communion weekly. There's so much that happens in that story. And so every week we take something bread-like and something wine-like and we remember Jesus. We remember the story of that meal. And this week, as we came to communion together, we especially focused on the reality that that meal is celebrated globally and across time by people who love Jesus, but express that in wildly different ways from one another. And yet we come with this bread and this cup held in God's love. Now we are at the halfway mark for our Romans series. And before we dive into our passage today, which will be Romans chapter nine, I want to give you a flyover to get our bearings. So Romans has four sections, ideas wise. The first half is Paul trying to help the Romans see that this, meaning creation, exodus, the prophets, the exile, Jesus, the Messiah, it is all connected. There's a broad story that Romans is working through, and it's this. God has a plan for the world, and God has made promises for how the plan will be accomplished. In order to accomplish the plan and keep the promises, Jesus came, died, and rose from the dead. Because Jesus is a faithful representative of humanity in general, of Israel more specifically, and Jesus is gathering a family around himself, led by God's Spirit, who will be the means by which creation is made new. Now, the problem for us is that Paul doesn't tell all of this story in a linear way. And in order to point out how the different plot points of that story are connected, he often alludes to them obliquely assuming that his listeners know that that illusion is a reference to the whole. It's real fun. Now, in the final section of the letter, chapters 12 to 16, Paul will start to explore some of the implications of this story, how this community that's God's family will live now in light of it. That's where we're going to go. And the idea that there's a story in the first place is where we've been so far. We're now in part three. Chapters 9 to 11, they're connecting another question raised by Paul's big story. It's a question that is particularly important to him as a Jew. What about Israel? Why did Israel exist? Why was it given the Torah? Why has it largely failed to believe in this Jesus if Jesus is in fact the Jewish Messiah? Has Israel just been thrown out? Was the Torah a failed idea? Now, We likely don't care about any of these questions. But what if I told you that how Paul works out this question for his community has a lot to say about how we might think about following Jesus in the context of rising Christian nationalism today? That might be a question closer to home. Because my hunch is that you have lost at least one friendship since 2016 because of the more polarized dynamics that expect all Christians to absolutely vote orange and know we cannot talk about it. My hunch is that you have a list of topics that are delicate now in certain circles with family or friends, but maybe it didn't feel quite so hard in the past. My hunch is that social media and news media alike can get you feeling some kind of way if you aren't intentional and careful about how you use it. Now, in some ways, this all is not new. The mythology of the United States is deeply tied up with a pseudo-Christianity that sees God's blessings as being evidenced through the acquisition of power and through dominance. And also, 
There have always been stories that sound more like Jesus. Stories of quieter faithfulness, ordinary courage, compassion for neighbor. In fact, these dual narratives, having them at all, it's part of what makes everything very difficult to untangle. Because when we've lived side by side, worshiping God together, being church together, reading the same Bible, and then we come to this time where we see things so differently, it's incredibly difficult. We feel like, are we following the same God? Are we reading the same Bible? How are we so far apart? Paul is in an analogous place. These questions that we don't much understand enough of to feel strongly about, they're deeply personal to him. What about Israel? Why did Israel exist and why was it given Torah? Why has it largely failed to believe in this Jesus if Jesus is in fact the Jewish Messiah? Has Israel just been thrown out? Was the Torah a failed idea? He dives into these questions in Romans 9.1 and I'm reading N.T. Wright's translation from the Bible for everyone here. I'm telling the truth in the Messiah. I'm not lying. I call my conscience as a witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and endless pain in my heart. Left to my own self, I'm half inclined to pray that I would be accursed, cut off from the Messiah on behalf of my own family, my own flesh and blood relatives. They are Israelites. The sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises all belong to them. The patriarchs are their ancestors, and it's from them, according to the flesh, that the Messiah has come, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul grew up with these people. They lived side by side, worshiping God together, being Israel together, reading the same scriptures. But they've come to this time where they see things wildly differently. The question, how should we follow God now, is answered in very radically different ways. Paul says Israel's story carries on in Jesus and in those who declare Jesus is Lord. It must feel like, wait, are we following the same God? Reading the same Torah? How are we so far apart? This causes Paul extreme anguish. He feels deeply the relational impact of this riff. I mean, I'm sure some of it is ideological or theological and all that, but really most of all, it's relational. He has great sorrow and endless pain for his own family, he says. Been there? Now, we also know from other places that Paul writes, and because it simply stands to reason that this is the case, that there are other Jews who feel this same way about Paul and about the other Jesus followers. They are anguished that Paul and these Christians would be so caught up in this new movement that they would fall away from the truth of Israel. They believe that how we follow God now is to observe Torah and temple worship and anticipate a Messiah who has not yet come. Who's right? And how do we know? Paul's confidence that he is right, heartbreaking though it is, it comes from everything he's laid out in that first half of the book so far, that big story he was telling. He's so sure that's the story. Now, as we've said along the way, Paul isn't making theological statements in Romans. He's not actually writing us a theological doctrine book, even though a lot of us have to do that kind of work to untangle the darn thing. Paul's connecting the Jesus story to God's larger story. He's saying 
This, Jesus arriving, is that, God's work that has always been happening. Freedom in Jesus is like freedom at the Exodus. This is that. God's faithfulness to raise Jesus to life is like God's faithfulness to give Israel life till now when Christ has come. This is that. But now Paul has a different this is that. God has, on the one hand, always chosen whomever God wants to choose. And now God has chosen the Jesus followers. God doesn't choose them on merit, but just because this is what God does. God chooses who God chooses. And so Romans 6, 9, Paul says, it can't be the case that God's word has failed. Not all who are from Israel, you see, are in fact Israel. Nor is it the case that all children count as, quote, seed of Abraham. So Paul is saying God has chosen some and not all, and that God can do that and still be faithful to God's chosen people. Now, in the verses that follow, Romans 9, 7 to 18, Paul names three big figures from Israel's story. Isaac, Jacob, and the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. These are the ones God chose to work through. Each of these characters has a counterpart. For Isaac, there's the counterpart of Ishmael, his half-brother. To Jacob, there's the counterpart of his twin brother, Esau. And for the Hebrew slaves, there's the counterpart of Pharaoh. These counterparts, Ishmael, Esau, and Pharaoh, they represent the pagans, those who don't put their trust in Yahweh, those whom Yahweh did not choose to carry on the story through. Paul's doing something pretty fascinating rhetorically here. And if you want to actually walk through these 11 verses in more detail, Curtis's backdrop episode will do that. But for now, I'll sum up by saying that Paul is putting Israel, the people of God descended from Isaac, Jacob, and the Hebrew slaves, into the position of Ishmael, Esau, and Pharaoh. The people who think of themselves as the one God has chosen are being put in the story as the role of the unchosen ones. God has always chosen to work with some, Paul says. And this, this Jesus group, is that. Paul is putting Israel in the position of pagans because he sees God's larger story of God always choosing some to work through. And it helps him discern that he's right to stick with Jesus that they're wrong to reject Jesus. Now, Paul anticipates pushback to this idea of God choosing and this idea that therefore Israel is missing it. And he says then in Romans 9, 19, you're going to say to me then, well, why does God blame people? Who can stand against God's purpose? In other words, if God's the one choosing, you're going to say, no fair. How can we deal with the fact that we weren't chosen? Now, he has a two-part response to this. And the way that he handles this response sheds a lot of light on our following Jesus together today. First, there's remnant. Remnant. Paul says that this, the faithfulness of a few, has always been the case. Israel has always been made up not by bloodlines, but by trust in Yahweh God. So Israel should never boast about rank. We're Israel. God's got us all the time. The exile testifies against that in a big way. But it's always been a remnant who return in trust to God. It's a remnant after the flood. It's a remnant after the exile. And it is a remnant now seeing Jesus with clear eyes. There's remnants. Second, 
Paul talks about return. He says they can always be welcome back. We may be miles apart at the moment, but they can always return because that's what God does. God is a brings people back kind of God. And this is why if you wanted to be reading the verses uh, 919 to 24, you'd see Paul use the image of a potter with clay. He says, are you a mere human going to answer God back? Surely the clay won't say to the potter, why'd you make me like this? Doesn't the potter have authority over the clay so that he can make from the same lump a vessel for honor, another for dishonor? All right. This pottery thing is another time where Paul offers a soundbite but expects his readers to tap into the full storyline. In this case, the story is Jeremiah 18, and there's a vision of a potter in clay. And the meaning of the vision is not discarding but remaking. The clay gets thrown in the fire not because it's being eternally rejected, but because that's where it gets a chance to be made new. God is always returning and bringing back. So those who trust Jesus now, they can't boast about being right. It doesn't make them special, just like Isaac, Jacob, and the Hebrew slaves weren't special. Being chosen is always about becoming so attuned to the loveliness and grace of God that you're able to expand it and include others in it. N.T. Wright describes that the thrust of Paul's thinking, it's not, you're special, so sit back, take it easy. It was always, you're chosen, so why are you taking God for granted, failing to honor God, or ignoring your call to carry forward God's purposes? Chosen isn't a badge to wear. It's more like an anchor that holds someone in a shifting sea. And to be clear, the specialness and the chosenness is not actually about being right. It's about being able to enjoy the grace and freedom of the risen Jesus. The grace that ends striving and the freedom that ends shame and the generosity of God that ends greed and scarcity. Remnant then. Remnant is part of what helps us with questions like, how should we think about Christian nationalism in the U.S.? Should I be seeking unity with others who also use the word Christian but seem to mean something very different than I do? Should churches be seeking unity and what would that look like? Or should we be hoping for some different sort of outcome? How do I discern as best I can if I'm staying faithful to God's purposes when so many people claim God and work at cross purposes? And return is part of what helps us be humble, gracious, and kind. It's what keeps us from being derailed by who's right and focused on the more wonderful guiding question that we hear from our friend Julie McGowan Boynt. What does love look like in this situation? What does love look like in this situation? Because return is always possible. I mean, let's just imagine for a minute that we're the ones who are wrong. We who are opposing Christian nationalism, I mean, let's say for a thought exercise that God does indeed want a Christian nation under Christian law led by a Christian political party. I don't think that's the case, but if it were, well, the path for me would be the same. Humility, grace, kindness in the name of Jesus. I would come back to the story, so would you, just like Paul does, trying to see it clearly, asking God to give us fresh eyes, 
having practices that leave us open to the way the spirit is working so that we would know that's the path we're meant to walk. Now, I don't think that that's the case. I don't think that Christian nationalism is the best way for us to follow Jesus in this context today. But I do think that we are all meant to keep practicing living lives that work in ways that match who God is. I do think that our church's core values of relationship, of openness to God's spirit, of authenticity, where we're our regular imperfect selves telling our honest stories, of diversity and honoring the image of God in those who are different than ourselves, and of sacrifice, where we posture ourselves towards others in a giving and generous way. These would be the practices, the values that would lead us forward one way or the other. Our God is always inviting us to return. And that's true whether we happen to be the ones that God thought was right about something or whether we happen to be the ones who were really wrong. Remnant and return help Paul process the incredible gap he now experiences with his faith community as they think of very different responses to Jesus. I think remnant and return can also help us process the ever-widening gulf between Jesus followers as we try to interpret what's happening at a political level in the U.S. And so, may God bless us with humility, grace, and kindness. May God bless us with wisdom to answer, what would love look like in this situation? And the courage to do that. Amen.